Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. You know, we, we live in, in a broken world, and uh, we are surrounded by, by sin and suffering. We experience sin and suffering, and that's just kind of part of our reality. The, uh, years ago, I, I went to a um, kind of a, a week-long training thing on counseling, and it, it was very helpful because in it they said, you know, when someone comes in, you can just pretty much take the entire story that they're sharing, and you can categorize everything as either sin or suffering. And sometimes we suffer because of someone's sin, and sometimes we sin because of our suffering and whatnot, but pretty much everything can, can be broken down into those two categories. And uh, I think often we give God too much credit for the suffering and not enough credit for the blessing. We tend to take all the credit for the blessing. We think that things are going well because we're smart and hardworking, but then when something goes wrong, well, it's God's fault and he doesn't really love us, and, and then he gets all the credit for, for the suffering. But within that, too, there, there are these moments where we sometimes wonder just, where is God? And, 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 it's, and it can be hard to, to see what's going on or, or his intervention or his work. We're, uh, we're starting a sermon series on the book of Esther. This is going to be a five-part sermon series. Uh, last week we did just kind of an overview of the book in general. Today we're going to be looking at the first two tra- uh, chapters, looking at a couple stories in there. If you have a Bible or, or an, uh, an app with a Bible, I would invite you to to open up to the book of Esther as we go through uh, different parts of it. One of the things that makes Esther unique is that it is one of two books in Scripture to never mention God. He, he's, God is never mentioned. And, and so you're not going to find you know, a verse that says, well, to be a good Christian, you should do this, or don't do this, that's sin, it's a bad. You don't find those kinds of verses in Esther. However, in Esther, we do have this incredible story. It's well-written, it's gripping, it it reads fast, it reads smooth. But in it, we can see God working to to save his people, even when all the humans involved don't see how God is working, at least not in the midst of it. Later on, looking back, you can see how he's working. But in in the midst of it, it's it's not uh, visible to them. And so Esther actually tells us a lot about the nature of God. Uh, It tells us how God is actively involved in our world, uh, and in some cases how God will set up events to save us from danger that are literally years down the road, that we have no idea are coming, but he has set things up beforehand to save us. There are a few lessons that we'll be able to extract for uh, our own life on just times where it's hard to see God, um, which is, that's, that's the real thing, and that... Those seasons of life where it's hard to see God, where it's hard to find God, those can be frustrating, and those can be painful, and those can be confusing, and so it's, it's something that is easily, uh, easy to relate to. The two stories that we're going to look at in a little bit of, of detail today, first is just how Esther becomes queen, and God's intervention in that, and then secondly is the story of Mordecai discovering a plot to kill the king. And uh, if you have Esther, I, I would invite you to open it up there. Um, we're just going to start at the beginning. In both of these stories, 
Uh, we can see God at work even when humanity fails to, to see it. And in both of these stories, they're, they're very critical because they, they set up both Esther and Mordecai for future events that, that will happen and how God works to save his people. So, starting right just kind of at the beginning, Esther gives us a little bit of background. Uh, Esther 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Um, there, there becomes a, a description of King, King Xerxes, or some translations may, see, may say King um, Ahasuerus. Probably pronounced that wrong. My apologies to the Hebrew scholars, but I'm just going with that pronunciation because you've got to land on something. Verse 1, now in the king of days, uh, Ahasuerus, the um, Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Like we said last week, uh, at this point in history, this was the largest king, kingdom that the world had ever known. Absolutely massive, millions of people, dozens and, and dozens of language. It was huge. Um, and this king, he's sovereign monarch, right? He's not elected. He didn't get in there because he won some kind of contest, right? Or some kind of military victory. He got this position because he was born into it. And he really had absolute control to really do kind of, for the most part, whatever he wanted. I mean, there were some laws, but he could do most anything that he wanted. So absolute control. And then Esther explains this, this party uh, that took place at the beginning. Verse 3, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. So that's the king. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So he has some kind of six-month party for kind of all the high-ranking individuals. And then he's going to have a week-long party for, you know, like the common folk, everyone else. Verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And then they described the, just the physical settings. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of Marble and mother of pearl and precious stones and drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, which is just another way to say help yourself all you want, no limit, seven day open bar, knock yourself out. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to, uh, to do as much as each man desired. A lot of money, a lot of feasting, a lot of drinking. Um, but more importantly, it, it really kind of gives us a sense of who the king is, right? Very wealthy, very powerful, uh, decadent. You could probably use the word decadent. Not conservative with money at all. That's not really how he operated. Uh, very lavish. The party progresses, the king has a bit too much to drink, and then this happens. And this uh, is really the setup for how Esther becomes queen. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, which is just a very politically correct way to say that, 
uh, Mary with wine. He commanded, then he lists seven names. I'm going to skip them because I butcher them. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples uh, and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. After this, Xerxes has a consult with his advisors. Apparently, this is a really big deal. They talk, they give him advice, they go back and forth, and eventually they decide that, uh, that Vashti should be fired as queen, queen and that they should hold auditions for a new one. Um, Based on this text, it does not look like she was executed, just that she lost that um, position, that, that title of, of being queen. She lost the status. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, actually about four years pass. It's during this time that um, Xerxes tries to uh, invade and conquer Greece, for which he fails miserably. There's kind of a famous story that happens during that time of these 300 Greeks who withhold the entire Persian army in, in this narrow pass until they're betrayed. So, But overall, he, he fails to conquer Greece, and the whole thing's a bit embarrassing. Um, so about four years pass, and then you have chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So the king and his advisors, they hold, a, um, they hold an audition. They hold a, a beauty pageant. Uh, he has his officials find the most beautiful young single girls in all the country from all the provinces. They're brought to the palace. And then in verse 5, we're introduced to Esther. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Uh, and then it gives us heritage and how they had been part of the group that were captives um, and, and carried away. Uh, uh, Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, so they were cousins, for she had neither father nor mother, so she was orphaned. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who is in charge of the women. As the story uh, will unfold later on, the ladies are brought in. They get a 12-month treatment of oils and spices um, in a palace in the nicest palace in all the land, like for a year, all-inclusive resort, uh, no manual labor allowed. Like, to me, it kind of sounds like a 12-month spa treatment. I'm not sure if that's really how it played out, but that's kind of how it sounds, just 12-month uh, spa treatment. And then they had one night with the king, and then they were moved over into the uh, other girls' dormitory, trying to keep this all PG, into the other girls' dormitory, where they waited basically to see if they were ever summoned again. And if the king remembered your name, you would be. And if he forgot your name, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess you weren't. There's, um, there's I, I have so many questions about the, the human dynamic of this. And I'm, 
I'm sure you would as too, and, and I would just address that, that briefly. You know, for, for these young women, I mean, were they honored? Were they privileged? Were, were they excited? Or were they horrified? Were they disgusted? Was, was this a, a nightmare? Um, I would say that their world, their worldview, their, their struggles, even how they viewed marriage, uh, is so different than what we would experience to just urge some caution to not jump to conclusions. We really don't know what this was like for Esther. We don't know if she was excited or, or horrified. The scriptures don't um, go there, and so we will just... I mean, basically, you just have to wait until you can ask Esther yourself. Um, but until then, scripture doesn't tell us. And I think scripture doesn't tell us for two reasons. One, it's not critical to the story. This really isn't a story about Esther. This is a story about God and God's providence. But even within that, our, I, my theory is that even today, our cultures are so diverse in how they would view this experience and whether it was something to be desired and something of um, sought after or whether it was some horrific experience to be avoided. I'd, we would just, cultures today would be so varied and so all across the spectrum in how they would, how they would view this. So, I have dozens of questions on that. I'm, I'm sure that, that you do too. Hopefully, though, by the end of the story, for Esther, she realizes just the amazing way that God positioned her to save the, the Jewish people and, and how she was used by God to save the, just her entire people from annihilation. And hopefully there's great comfort and joy and pride for her in that. And, and if you're unfamiliar with kind of how things unfold, um, as, as the story unfolds, Haman, an enemy of the Jew, um, rises up in the story and seeks to eradicate the entire Jewish people. And really, um, Esther, because she is queen, has the opportunity to approach the king and petition on behalf of the Jewish people. And really, there's this phenomenal plot twist where the Jewish people go from a position of about to be slaughtered to actually eradicating their enemies. So, part of that. Two thoughts, though, um, for you as it pertains to, to how God positioned Esther as queen. In the earthly realm, this part of the story really is, is, um, is really just about Esther being beautiful. Like really, really beautiful, right? Like she won out 127 provinces. You know, she won as the most beautiful gal amongst all of them. But in the spiritual realm, this is God positioning the right person at the right place, at the right time, to fulfill God's purposes of saving God's people from a destruction that no one even knows about, right? Because it's going to be another four or five years later before Haman comes up with this plot to eradicate these people. And so in the spiritual realm, God is putting pieces in place to save his people from an impending doom that only he knows about. So in the earthly realm, this is all about Esther being beautiful. But in the spiritual, this is God making Esther a unique person to fulfill a unique role to, to save God's people. And I would say from that, that, that you are unique for a purpose. 
that you are unique for a purpose. Psalm 139, 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love the word workmanship. It gets a little bit lost in the English. It's, it's not just, like when I think of workmanship, I think of like two by fours nailed together. This is not that, okay? This is like very intricate, detailed, artistic, this word is sometimes translated as poetry, right? You are God's poetry created for, for good work. So very finely crafted, very ornate. Now, all of us have kind of a, a fleshly, sinful craving. So, so this part is important. When you are at your most holy, most righteous, most well-rested, most clear-thinking, most kind of God-centered self. What do you crave? What, what righteous anger do you have? What do you love? What does your heart break for? What do you have extraordinary energy for? Because that is the thing that God made you to do. That is how God has created you in a unique way. And if that thing requires smarts, he's going to give you smarts. If it requires international level beauty, he's going to provide that, right? I mean, if it provides whatever kind of skill or energy that, that it requires, God is going to equip you with that. God made Esther beautiful for a reason. It served his purpose of saving his people, right? To have one single girl be considered the most beautiful in all the nations, um, it also would have to be someone who, who would obey God. And so I believe that God, that, that what happened here required God-level intervention, and that God intentionally created Esther for this purpose, just like he has done with you. God has intentionally created you uniquely for purpose. Which brings me to my, my second point on this, and that is just the, the topic of beauty. It's, you, you can't, you, you have to talk about beauty in this story because it, it's such a dominant part at, this, at, at the beginning of the story. Beauty is an interesting thing. I mean, obviously, some beauty is determined by culture, and one culture will value this, and another culture will value that, and, and that's kind of a funny conversation in and of itself. Um, obviously, Esther was good-looking by their standards, whatever that meant. Um, but when you are competing literally against the most beautiful women in the entire country, like, how do you stand out? Like, how are you considered unique amongst that? Like, what, why are people drawn to you, to you more than others? Xerxes knew beautiful women, okay? He had probably seen a, a lot of them, right? But as you read the story... Esther's, and I can't think of a better word to it, so I'm just going to go with magnetism. Esther's magnetism was so strong that I think there's actually a spiritual component that is taking place here. Because if you read about it, it's like, like it's, it's unusual, right? Um, starting in verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at when her father and mother died. Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king gave orders and edicts were proclaimed, 
Uh, many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel. Uh, Esther was taken into them. Verse 9, the young woman pleased him. So this would have been Haggai, the, the guy who's in charge of all this. Pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly, he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Like, that's kind of an unusually strong reaction. Esther 2, verse 16. When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, um, and then gives some tenth month, seventh day, whatever, the king loved Esther more than all the women... She won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti, and then if that's not enough, he generates a national holiday around this. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the providence and gave gifts with royal generosity. There is something going on here that transcends the physical right i think my theory that that there was there was some kind of spiritual radiance or, or some kind of empowerment by the spirit of god where esther was winning over the hearts of all who saw her just at an unnatural rate one event I remember in detail. I know it happened a second time. I don't remember all the, the details of it the second time, other than just I, I know it, it happened another time. Uh, in both instances, um, it was women, uh, it was young women, uh, who had a significant um, uh, like spiritual moment, whether it was forgiveness, healing, surrender, something. I don't know. So a very significant spiritual event happened in their life. In both times, and, and I remember the one specifically, in both cases... Within 24 hours, like literally it was the next day, their or her um, countenance, her uh, face, her beauty was so notably improved that other people audibly, verbally commented to her in the presence of others. I mean, we're sitting at a table and the other women say something about your radiance, your beauty... Is, is more today than it was yesterday. When you see it happen very dramatically in a short time frame like that, right? Like literally a 24-hour shift. It, co it confirms what I think most of us sense to be true or have believed to be true, that your spiritual beauty really impacts your physical beauty. And I believe this to be true for men and women because we see it happen with Moses as well too. So for men and women, when you walk in right relationship with the Lord, when you pursue Jesus, when you rid yourself of the sin and the guilt and the shame, somehow that impacts your, your countenance, your appearance. Spiritual beauty impacts physical beauty as well, too. Um, one gentleman... Um, I don't know, you've probably had this where someone says something and it just kind of sticks like a sliver into your brain and you're like, well, that was an interesting comment. And then you're, and then you're still remembering it 20 years later. Um, but one gentleman made the, the comment once about how 
he, w- he was talking about for single ladies, just when they have that God-given radiance, it does two things. One, it draws the godly men, but it also keeps away the riffraff because they're intimidated by the righteousness of God over that girl. should probably do a sermon on that someday, but just sliver in my brain, I thought I'd share it with you. God made Esther unique because it fulfilled his purpose of saving his people. God made you unique because he has a purpose for you as well. And your uniqueness will be in alignment with, with, with God's call on your life. And secondly, there's, there's a level of attraction going on here that just seems unusual, that seems unnatural, and seems to verify this idea that spiritual beauty affects physical beauty. Second main story that I want for us uh, to look at today is how God positioned Mordecai to discover the, the plot to have the king assassinated. Um, verse 21, um, still, in, uh, still in chapter 2, verse 21, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, uh, Bigtham and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, which is a polite way of saying they wanted to kill him. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. We don't know how. He told Queen Esther. Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai when the affair was investigated. It was found to be true. The two men were hanged on the gallows and was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. For starters, the mere fact that Mordecai knew about this or discovered this or heard this is just unusual in and of itself. I mean, maybe they were very bad assassins. I'm not sure. But just just the fact that that Mordecai found out about it uh, is unusual. And and that becomes incredibly significant later on. You'll also note, just kind of in the silence, that there's no reward given to Mordecai. And that's also very significant. And that's going to come into play four to five years later. But for now, all we know is that he hears about the plot, he reports the plot, uh, and that he is recorded as the one who, who shares it. And again, God, I believe that God orchestrates this, and that, we, that, that, yeah, that God is orchestrating this to fulfill his agenda later on. Because this will actually play into the key kind of story pivot shift that's going to happen later on when King Xerxes can't sleep, and, you know, so he has history read to him, And this story comes up. And at that point, everything shifts and everything turns. Why was Mordecai honest? Why did he share this? Why did he not just keep silent? I mean, King Xerxes was not exactly a God-fearing man. You know, Mordecai just could have thought, well, hey, maybe the Jewish people will do better under a different king. Let's just let this ride and and we'll see what happens with, with the new king. So, I mean, there's, again, so many questions around that. Mordecai and Esther did not know at the time the significance of reporting this. Um, And in doing so, really gaining the king's favor, even though at the time it didn't feel like it. But in the long run, it's so critical. A few thoughts on this. One is to have integrity in the moment. Right? Like when you're in doubt and you're not sure, just whatever maintains your integrity. Right? Whatever aligns with honesty uh, and being forthright. Uh, the second is just 
we don't know the future. We don't know what God has in plan, planned. And so obedience to God is always best because he knows how this is going to turn out. And so if there is a sense that this is an act of obedience or God's will to move on it, because you simply have no idea how this will turn out. Um, as you know, I used to work with Trek. I tell lots of my stories from my time at Trek for two reasons. One, there are lots of stories. But secondly, it would just be awkward if I shared stories from my time here because one day you're going to find yourself in an illustration. And you're going to be like, hey, I think he's talking about me. So, you know, I try to avoid too many stories, right? Wherever I'm at next, then I'll share all my stories from here. But for now, no. Um, so I, I, I've shared stories with that. I don't think, though, I've ever shared with you how Trek teams were chosen. So uh, within the Trek program, right, short-term missions, young adults, they all show up and they know the assignment locations, but they don't know which team they're on. So they know, you know, one team's going to go to Japan, one Ecuador, one whatever, but they don't know where they're headed. Two weeks into the program, the leadership team um, locks themselves in a room. They pray and they pray and then they pray some more. And then they sit back and they say, Lord, how do you want these teams split up? Then they write all the names on pieces of paper or on a marker board or that kind of thing. And they just start moving names. Now beforehand, too, there was a sense of like, hey, are you feeling called to a particular country? Like, write it down, let us know, you know, and sometimes they would and sometimes they wouldn't and that kind of thing. But leadership team just would lock themselves up in a room with, with open hands going, Lord, I uh, talk to us. Typically about half an hour to two hours. Um, no one left until everyone was at complete peace about how the teams were split up. And I actually have so many fascinating stories even just from that process. I mean, some... I, there was more than one time we, where we were stuck, we were stuck, we were stuck, and then someone moves one name over and just the whole room goes, oh, that's it. And then the next morning we show up and we're like, hey, Ecuador, this is your team leader and this is your team. In Germany, this is your team leader and then this is your team. And then we found it was best to just roll right into worship and just kind of let them take whatever they were feeling back to the Lord because... There were tears of different kinds all over the place. But the reason that we did it that way is that we had no idea what these teams would encounter in the next six months. We had no idea what was going to unfold regarding team dynamics. We had no idea what God wanted them to learn from a, a particular missionary or experience. We didn't know what was going to happen in country. And so how arrogant of us to presume that we could predict beforehand what good teams would be without going... To God the Father, who knew how all this was going to play out and who had a very specific agenda for each member on that team. So if he's got an agenda and he knows how this is going to play out, well, let's just check in with him to see how he wants teams split up. And so we were very intentional to create a space to just say, all right, Lord, how do you want this done? And then in community, discern this. When it comes to the future, you can't outsmart God. Like you can't. Like you're just not that good. You don't know it. So obey him when he tells you to do something or when he gives you an opportunity to do something and trust that in the long run this is going to be a good and necessary thing. Maybe not for you, maybe for others, but just trust that this is what he wants done and how he wants it done. Mordecai could have stayed silent, right? But he didn't. He chose integrity. He chose to be 
honest with, with the information that he had, and, and he trusted that, that God had given him the information for a reason. And as you see later on, his integrity in the moment is critical to this whole story. Esther is a good book. It's a fun book. It reads well. It reads quick. It's a captivating story. And yet, even though it never mentions God, you see God all over it. Really, especially once you make it through once, you see how it ends. Then you go back and you read it a second time. You're like, oh, he's there and there and there and there and here. Like you just see God's fingerprints all over it. For the people in the moment, God may have seemed silent. May he, maybe he seemed distant. Maybe he seemed quiet. But when you look back, he's all over the place. God made Esther unique for a special task that he had for her, just like he made you unique for special tasks that he is calling you to do. The attraction towards Esther seems supernatural. Spiritual beauty affects physical beauty. And God made Mordecai aware of a plot to assassinate the king. He shares the information, saves the king, positions himself to be um, favored, but that doesn't come out until much later on in the story. But to keep your integrity, to share what you know. And when it comes to the future, you can't outsmart God, right? Like, obey him when he tells you to do something. God is at work in your life even when you can't see it, just like he was for Esther and Mordecai. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a lot of fun to look back on this story and see um, just how you are working in so many remarkable ways, Lord. And God, at times it feels like the, the part that we relate to the most is just wondering where you're at and what's going on. And, and are you present, and are you working, and are you involved? And yet we look back and we see your involvement so clearly, so prolifically throughout everything. Lord, I pray that this would inform and inspire our faith today, that even now that you are, you are working and that, that you are involved and that you are orchestrating, Lord, and that we would surrender ourselves fully to you and, and, and to your agenda and, and the things that you want to see happen, God. And so, Lord, we, we come before you with open hands to just say, here am I, and use me. And, Lord, we want to be obedient to the things that you are calling us into. And that throughout all of this, throughout all of this, that the central theme for Esther's story and for our story is that you would be glorified and that your kingdom would expand. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.